there really is nothing like history and science to remind you just how precious and precarious our existence on this rotating rock we like to call home really is. In fact, there were many points in human history where things were, frankly, touch and go for humanity. And yet, here we are, and this time we're facing another challenge, this time one of our own creation. Climatologist and author Michael Mann has been studying climate change for 25 years. Leonardo DiCaprio apparently used him as inspiration for his character in Don't Look Up, a film about society not heeding scientific warnings. His new book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis, aims to more or less dispel the narrative of despair, reminding you that humans have survived changes to our climate before, and we can and must do it again. Welcome to you, Michael. Uh, Thanks, Andy. It's great to be with you. It's been 25 years since you published the hockey stick graph, which clearly showed a steep incline in the Earth's atmospheric temperature coinciding with our use of fossil fuels. That graph really was a lightning rod at the time. It caused debate. It caused criticism. It understandably caused fear. You flash forward to today And you know the situation's bad when even the producers of the reality TV series Survivor are talking about how climate change is causing havoc with making their show. When you look back, how do you feel about the progress we've made when it comes to talking and dealing with climate change? Yeah, well, you know, it is 25 years later uh, from the you know, the, the, the year that we published the hockey stick curve, which really did lay bare the the reality of human-caused warming, showing the abrupt warming that coincides with the Industrial Revolution and how unprecedented uh, it is in the context of the past thousand years. And in fact, we now know that it's unprecedented over a much longer time frame. So that's 25 years ago when uh, we really already uh, had an affirmative case for humans warming the planet and changing our climate. We knew enough to act back then But we haven't seen adequate action. We haven't seen the the, the reduction in carbon emissions that's necessary to avert truly catastrophic warming. So we're here 25 years further down the road, not having made nearly enough progress. Um, That's a huge lost opportunity, because if we had begun to decarbonize our world, our, our economy back then, it would have been pretty easy to do. But now we have to accomplish a monumental task of reducing carbon emissions by 50% this decade and and down to zero uh, within just a few decades if we are to avoid crossing the 1.5 Celsius warming threshold where we'll, we'll, we'll see far worse impacts than we're already seeing. I know this might sound like it's oversimplifying it, but is the main reason why greed is the main reason why we haven't dealt with our emissions purely down to human greed. It is, but we have to properly apportion blame here. It's not a greed that is shared equally among all of us. It's the greed of a fairly small number of fossil fuel companies and the major shareholders uh, of those fossil fuel companies and the executives of those fossil fuel companies who knew decades ago themselves, that we were on a dangerous path. In fact, uh, ExxonMobil, the world's largest uh, publicly traded fossil fuel company, back in 1982, in an internal report, a secret report that eventually was leaked, 
Their own scientists referred to the potential consequences of continued burning of fossil fuels. And this word is not Al Gore's word, it's not mine. It was the word used by ExxonMobil's own scientists in that report, catastrophic. And we are now seeing those catastrophic impacts that ExxonMobil itself predicted. So they well knew the problem, and other fossil fuel companies knew the problem that our you know, continued reliance on fossil fuels was creating, and yet they engaged in a massive campaign to attack and undermine public faith in the science, the very science that their own scientists had secretly affirmed, the science that told us that if we continued to burn fossil fuels, um, if we continued on a fossil fuel intensive pathway, that we would see catastrophic consequences. And we're now seeing those consequences. We're seeing the impacts play out in real time in Australia, New Zealand, here in North America, in Europe, and around the world. In a much more recent time frame, in fact, when we last spoke about two years ago, you told me, and I quote, we're now at a very favourable point when it comes to the global effort to tackle the climate crisis. We are seeing a ramping up of renewable energy. Global carbon emissions have plateaued and we are starting to turn the corner. Those are your words. Now, since then, we've seen the Biden and uh, Albanese administrations in our two countries, respectively, the Inflation Reduction Act in yours, the Climate Change Bill in mine. Has your attitude changed? Do you think there's a degree of hope in these two acts of political will? Yeah, so, you know, it's it, it's difficult. Uh, you know, we have to sort of hold two seemingly contradicting notions in our minds at the same time, and it's tough to do. Um, and those notions are that, A, we're making real progress, and that's true. B, we're not making enough progress. So, you know, what we have done, uh, if you look at where we were back um, in 2015 before the Paris Accord, Business as usual, the, the policies that were in place would have warmed the planet by, you know, four degrees or more uh, by, you know, the, the end of the century. That was the trajectory that we were on. And, and that's a truly catastrophic uh, amount of warming. We've made enough progress now. Um, in fact, it was closer to uh, uh, four, four and a half, I think, is where we were headed. Um now, if you look at current policies, the policies we have in place, uh, they're probably enough to keep warming below three degrees. So we've made some significant progress there, but that's still way too much. Now, if we see an implementation of all of the commitments that were made at uh, COP28, uh, the UN Climate Conference two years ago, if every country in the world makes good on their commitments coming out of COP28, then that's enough to bring the warming down to two degrees. But that war, you know, those commitments have to be kept and they have to be kept on time. Those are two major caveats. That's so th those are the caveats, you know, those are promises made, and they're not yet promises kept. And it's still too much warming. We really need to keep warming below one and a half to uh, Celsius to avert the worst consequences of climate change. Um, you know, it's not really a cliff that we go off at one and a half. It's much more like a dangerous highway. And if we miss the 1.5 exit, well, we still go for 1.6. Uh, and if we miss that, we still go for 1.7. Every fraction of degree matters. But the further we go down that highway, the greater danger that we face. 
In your book, you write about a paleoclimate scientist, William Ruddiman, who argues that humans began affecting the climate long before industrialization. You also argue that civilizations have, have adapted to shifts in the climate before. You cite the Natufian culture in southern Syria and the Chinese along the Yangtze River. What can we learn from these examples about, I suppose, drawing some inspiration that this current challenge is not insurmountable? Yeah, you know, we can draw um, both, in, you know, uh, some sort of um, hopeful, we can find hopeful lessons in what's happened in the past, but there are also some cautionary tales there. And uh, one of the the sort of the tales that I tell is um, the rise and fall of ancient Mesopotamia. It was the first true civilization, um, the first city-state. It grew into an empire. Um, and... Uh, that um, that empire arose, civilization arose in Mesopotamia, which literally means the, the land between the two rivers. And those two rivers are the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The area was getting drier because of long-term drying associated with uh, climate drivers over thousands of years. And that meant that it was getting increasingly difficult to maintain rain-fed agriculture. So what did we do? Human beings, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. Um, under that stress, we developed irrigation. Um, by tapping into the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, that water supply, um, and creating, you know, large-scale engineering projects, the early hydrological engineering projects, they were able to maintain agriculture, uh, but that required specialization. You needed a, a, a workforce that had the ability to to do those engineering pro projects that freed up uh, farmers. So you now had sort of specialization. Uh, you now had division of labor. You had all of the pieces necessary to create civilization. So that's how the civilization arose because of the stress of climate change. But 2,000 years later, so that's about 4,000 years ago, uh, Mesopotamia collapsed. The Akkadian Empire collapsed, and that was due to a very abrupt drying event that we think probably had to do with a huge volcanic eruption. It dr dried out the region for about 10 years. Um, strife broke out. Uh, there was conflict between the north and so south, the northern and southern parts of the that empire. Um, there was even a wall that was created. Um, it is The uh, repeller of the Ammonites was the name of that wall that stretched from the Tigris to the Euphrates to keep out the northerners. Uh, because the Southerners were trying to maintain their own access to water and food. And, and so, you know, it's it's a truly cautionary tale because, of course, we're seeing something like that here in the United States with um, this wall at the southern border that uh, Donald Trump wanted to build, um, essentially to keep what we can think of as environmental refugees from Central America and, and Mexico out. You know, history um, you know, repeats itself. And those, as uh, often said, uh, those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. And so there's so many lessons to learn there. One of the lessons is the fundamental challenge that water has always meant in sensitive regions like the Middle East um, and an epic drought because of uh, human-caused warming in Syria was what led to the uh, Arab Spring back in 2011, and an argument can be made that the battle over uh, resources and, and uh, including water resources, precious water resources, underlies the ongoing conflict between 
Israel and Palestine as well. And look at what we're seeing, uh, you know, happen today. Uh, so many cautionary tales in what happened in the past. It, it is fascinating to think that uh, compared to those prehistoric civilizations, we have science and the connectedness of an information system, and still we can't tackle this kind of existential threat, which we all will suffer if we don't. Your book is hopeful and is optimistic. You're sort of rallying against the powers that be who deliberately send messages of despair in order to kind of dissuade us from fighting. I'm just wondering if you have a couple of reasons for people listening to remain hopeful, especially as we come into this summer, this uh, fire season, this El Nino, which is expected to be catastrophic. How do we maintain the hope in essence? Yeah, and I, I was there for the Black Summer um, 20, you know, 2019, 2020. I was actually in Sydney on sabbatical and, and lived through that along with, um, you know, uh, Australians. And, and that is when I feel that I first came face to face with, with the uh, devastating consequences of climate change, living through that summer in Australia. And of course, we're very fearful uh, of, you know, something similar, even worse now with this uh, El Nino uh this growing El Nino as we go into the austral summer. Um, so, you know, as I like to say, there are sort of two things that we need to sort of think about. One of them is urgency. There is no question about the urgency. We're seeing devastating consequences. Australia in the black summer, in the flooding that has occurred since, is seeing the devastating consequences. Here in Philadelphia, where I live, we had the worst air quality in the world, much as like uh, Sydney did um, and parts of Australia did during the black summer. We had the worst air quality in the world here because of Canadian wildfire smoke that was coming down here into the U.S. East Coast. And so we're, we're witnessing the, the devastating consequences of climate change. There's no question that there is great urgency in acting. But, and this is the other part of it that you're alluding to, there's agency too. It's not too late for us to make a, a, a fundamental uh, difference for us to address this crisis before it does become you know, civilization-threatening. Um, there is still time, and we do, as you say, the difference, you know, between the dinosaurs, they could see the uh, coming asteroid, they couldn't have done anything about it, even if they had, we don't have that excuse, we, we see this, this coming threat, and we can do something about it. And here's some of the science that, you know, when we look at the it, it, towards the past, we look at past climate events, um, it sort of reaffirms our understanding of how the climate system works um, as sort of represented in our state-of-the-art climate models. The paleoclimate record is one way that we validate those models. And what those models now tell us, there's a little bit of good news, is that when we stop adding carbon pollution to the atmosphere, the planet stops warming up. We didn't used to think that. We used to think that the planet would continue warming up for decades uh, because of the crude nature of the models that we were using. Now we have more sophisticated models. And one of the things that we find is that when we stop burning fossil fuels and producing carbon pollution, the oceans play a critical role in actually drawing down that carbon. So the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere starts to drop uh, immediately. And it turns out that when you take into account that additional factor, it tells us that the warming stops when we stop polluting. And that's what allows us, for example, to calculate a carbon budget. We can say that there's a certain amount of carbon 
that's left that we can still afford to burn and keep warming below one and a half Celsius. But you know what? That carbon budget is getting smaller and smaller. And at this point, we do need to see truly dramatic action. We do need to see a 50% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030, and we need to see them come down to zero by 2050. It's doable. The obstacles aren't climate physics. They're not technology. We have the technology to decarbonize our world. The obstacles right now are purely political, and political obstacles can be overcome. Michael Mann, it's been an absolute pleasure to have a moment to speak about your new book, Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.